Most bankers aren't ready to help you until after their third cup of coffee. But with Central National Bank's after-hours service, you don't have to wait for the bank lobby to open to get help. You can contact us from 6 to 8.30 in the morning or from 5 to 10 in the evening, and we'll connect you to a real, live, local person who can answer questions and fix problems seven days a week. Bank different. Bank central. Central National Bank. Member FDIC. The Waco History Podcast is sponsored by Brotherwell Brewery on Historic Bridge Street in Waco. Cross the Brazos and Waco Ride hard and I'll make it by dawn Cross the Brazos and Waco I'm safe when I reach San Antonio All right, welcome back to the uh, Waco History Podcast. This is one I've been wanting to do for a long time. It was a decade in the making, um, but Mark Furman is with us here uh, to talk about Cameron Park. We've been wanting to do a series on Cameron Park on the podcast for a while, and Mark's the guy to start with. And so Mark has an eclectic background. He has an undergraduate degree and a master's in history uh, from Baylor University. Then he ran off and went to uh, a uh, library science program at the University of Texas, and then he came back and did a uh, doctoral, or as his Jewish doctorate, he's got a JD degree uh, from Baylor as well, right? Did I get all your degrees in there, Mark? That's correct. So, and he works for Beard Colgen now here in town. Uh, you got your, uh, you finished law school in 2016? Yeah, I finished law school actually, yeah, 2016, so I'm in my fifth year of practice. Okay. And we're starting late today, and Mark let me know that I'm billed for the hour uh, already. So we don't want to go over the top of the hour because that'll really cost me. But in, in another life uh, around the Cameron Park Centennial, which Mark will explain to us when that was, Mark authored a wonderful book uh, on William Cameron Park for the Centennial. And uh, if you've got a copy of it out there sitting on your coffee table, you, you're enjoying it because it's a beautiful book. And so Mark has done a lot of research on the park, and so we brought him in to give us a little bit of a historical overview of the park itself. Um, the park is enjoyed by so many, but I don't think a lot uh, know the history of the park. And so that's a great place to start, Mark, if you would, just kind of lay out some of the general background of maybe the formation of the park and how it came about. Sure. So... Um Back in the early 20th century, so Cameron Park, the first donation was in 1910 from the Cameron family. Prior to that, there was virtually no parkland in Waco. It was just a couple of, of acres. And there was a agitation for parks in the city, mostly by Federation of Women's Club, kind of spearheaded by Kate Friend and a bunch of other civic leaders. And so they passed a park bond issue to purchase parks. It was about 35000 So back then, that was quite a bit of money. Mm -hmm. And the general plan was to try to put a park in every single ward. Back then, Waco had consisted of about five different wards. And uh, ultimately what happened is um, the Cameron family purchased the area of Proctor Springs. Varying people will tell you it's between 90 acres and 125 acres. The Proctor Springs area is right around Herring Avenue. It's the most scenic and historic area of the park. And so when that was purchased by the Camerons in May of 1910, it was then deeded over to the city of Woodway for the pleasure of the people. Uh, city of Waco. Yeah, City of Waco. Yeah, yeah. Apologize. Yeah. yeah. City of Waco was deeded over to the city to use as a public park. And then about half of the funds from that park bond issue were used for landscaping and beautifying Cameron Park. So that was kind of the genesis of the park. And then you had multiple donations from the Cameron family, you had acquisitions of the city of Waco over time to get to about 416 acres now. So if we if we go to Proctor Springs today and we see some of those features that are built in, were those improvements that were made during that period? Correct. Yeah. So the, the landscape architect firm they hired was actually a firm called um, Brown and Brothers, and the landscape architect was a gentleman named A.L. Rose, and they were out of Rochester, New York. The original person they considered was a man named George Kessler. He was a very la famous landscape architect. Mm -hmm. He did the St. Louis World's Fair in 1904. He did a lot of the parks and boulevard system in Kansas City. 
He did Fair Park in Dallas, and then he actually presented a master plan to the city of Dallas, which at that point in time, doing a master plan for a city was a new concept. Yeah, real progressive. Right. Yeah. We couldn't find a whole lot of information on what happened with Kessler um, and couldn't get a whole lot of cooperation for what was going on in St. Louis. I'd love to go back up and see his papers and see if there's anything in there. Mm-hmm. Um, but as a graduate student with no money, you don't really have the opportunity to drive to St. Louis. <laughs> Um, and so uh, they, they used the, the road, AL rows. And so those are, when you go to Proctor Springs now and you see those improvements, those are original to about 1911. And that was part of the deal where you used the natural beauty of the park and you incorporated some elements like that. In fact, there are some of the original retaining walls opposite Proctor Springs there's a lot of growth, overgrowth there, but if mm-hmm. you go look at some of the postcards back from that period of time, even some of the photographs, you can see it. And I know that the city of Waco would like to be able to restore that, uh, particularly the Parks and Recreation Department, but trying to stabilize uh, some of those walls is not going to be cheap. But it, it would be a really good thing to be able to do to kind of revitalize that area and some of the natural landscaping there. Mm-hmm. You know, when you said that about parkland, I mean, I think of these bird's eye maps that a lot of us have seen of Waco in the 19th century, and yeah, there's not any green space. No. So what motivated them uh, kind of in the early 20th century to do something like this? Is they're talking about why they want to do it? Yeah, yeah. And, and so my contention in, in the book was in looking at, I spent about, I went through the Waco Times-Herald every day for about two years from 1909 to 1910 and then parts of 1911. And you really get a sense of what people in the community were discussing. Sweeping the country at the time was what was called the City Beautiful Movement. Mm-hmm. It's part of the progressive era. And the City Beautiful Movement really talked about how you would have a kind of a triad of utility, efficiency, and beauty. And there was a bunch of key tenants associated with the City Beautiful Movement. And I had to remind myself a lot of what that was. Um, one of the main guys that kind of talked was a guy named J. Horace McFarlane. Articles of his were republished in the Waco Time Herald. And he talked about how it was a crusade against ugliness. You, you had the philanthropy of the upper class, Cameron family. You had the involvement of women. Even though they couldn't vote, they're the ones saying, we need to have these green spaces. Kate Friend, um, who I mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. was one of the leading voices for that. The education uh, was a key component. You could see the Waco Public Library editions that, that they got um, were published in the Times-Herald. So that's how people found out that the library got new books other than just going there. Mm-hmm. Some of those included books by Charles Moultrie Robinson, which were books that were talking about how we're going to do modern civi- civic art, which included parks, green spaces, which would be, um, you know, Riverside Drive, University Parks now that goes all the way from downtown through Cameron Park. Um you also had the addition or the creation of what was called the Civic Department. And they actually referred to the Civic Department as the Waco Beautiful. So they were talking about things that were going on, not just in connection with Cameron Park, but all over the city to kind of beautify the city, kind of pick it up. They even would set aside a day each year to kind of clean up trash, things like that. And the prevailing thought was that you needed these green spaces so that people had a place to recreate. They could have leisure it was considered healthy, hygienic, um, basically ways for people to get out, not go to the saloons, not go to bars, um, spend time with your children, family, outdoors, and it didn't cost you anything. And if you didn't acquire green space then, it was going to be engulfed by, you know, developers and everything else. So mm-hmm. there was a real move to do that in the city. And in Proctor Springs was one of the locations and it was one of the most, it was on the outskirts of town though when you think about it. Yeah. Um, there were some other places that, that would eventually became parks kind of in and around, but even now, I mean, there's not a lot of green space in downtown Waco. I mean, mm-hmm. one of the places was called Edgefield, which I think is on where the marching band practices yeah. now for Baylor. Yeah. Um, you had Cotton Palace Park, which was called Patrick Park back then. Mm-hmm. You had Mackey Park, which ultimately became Bledsoe Miller, which is on the other side in East Waco, which was predominantly just a black park because we had segregated parking facilities at the time and for well up into the 1960s and 1970s, whether it was formal or informal. But there just wasn't a lot there. Gurley Park was another one that I can Mm -hmm. think of. But by and large, there just wasn't any green space. And this was 
a movement as part of the progressive era to acquire parkland so that people can have places to go. Yeah. Um, to, to that end, how are they using the park early on? I mean, I, I've seen postcards of Proctor Springs, especially, and um, I think performances like Shakespeare performances in Proctor Springs. I think I'm remembering. There was yeah. a, I know there was a performance of Midsummer Night Dream mm-hmm. that was done by Waco High, but I think that was, you know, kind of towards the 1950s, 1960s. Okay. okay. But you did have a Shakespeare park, mm-hmm. which was outside of Cameron Park that Kate Friend had had developed. She was a internationally known Shakespeare scholar. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you actually go down on Riverside, you know, University Parks, if you look back before you get into the park, there's those red gates that say Rotan Drive, which mm-hmm. were original. Off to the left, you can still see the Shakespeare monument that was erected. Uh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. so they would do plays and reading down there. Mm. Um, but a lot of it was people, I mean, just hiking in the park. You know, there was about several hundred benches that were there. Picnics were there. Um, people would swim in Proctor Springs. In the 1930s, they built a rose garden. The rose garden had around 1,400 different rose bushes, 80 different variety of roses. There was a wading pool, two different large fountains. And people just, you know, they went there to cool off during the summer months. Up at the clubhouse, you had tennis courts. So, you know, it was there was just a lot of outdoor activity that happened. People would, would swim in the Brazos. They would fish in the Brazos. So there was even early on a zoo. It was kind of a miniature zoo, and I've seen one or two pictures of it, and there was a couple animals and things like that, but nothing like Cameron Park Zoo or even the the zoo that was out of the Waco airport. Yeah, the Syntex Zoo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, which I had nightmares about because I got lost. I got left behind one time. We're going to get to that story in a minute. Yeah, yeah, yeah I bet. <laughs> um, but, I mean, that was the kind of thing. I mean, it was just it was an opportunity for people to go out and spend time outdoors. In fact, the demand was so high to get into the park, particularly in the 1930s and even in the 1960s, you had to get there about 5 a.m. in the morning just to get a table. If you wanted to reserve one of the shelters in the 1950s and 1960s, you were lined up outside of Alva Sten's door on January 1st at 8 a.m. Um, in the freezing cold. Mm-hmm. He was the Parks and Recreation Director at the time. Yeah, to be able to secure. Just to be yeah. able to secure a reservation. So, I mean, the pattern of people, you know, recreating in the park was just, it was, it was amazing. In fact, in the 1930s, they calculated in May of one year that they had 8,000 people visit the park in one day. That was about 20% of Waco's population. That's amazing. And then in the 1960s, they estimated that about 400,000 people had visited the park in one year. So there was just a lot of heavy use of the park, whether or not you were just going to to spend time outdoors because there's a lot of shade and it's cooler Mm -hmm. and a lot of people didn't have air conditioning. So where do you go? You go to the park, Mm -hmm. you know? So it was, um, I mean, it really was a gathering place for for the city. Mm-hmm. I think it's useful for those that don't know to talk a little bit about the Cameron family. And it is William Cameron Park, uh, as Tom Charlton always pointed out to me. Uh, you know, it's not Cameron Park. But talk a little bit about the Camerons, who they were. Obviously, they were a wealthy leading family, but most folks may not know that. Yeah, no, William Cameron was of Scottish descent. He was He was born in Scotland. Uh, his parents wanted him to either go into the law, which he should have, obviously, <laughs> um, or into the ministry, which is a lot, what a lot of parents wanted back in the day. You know, you, you go into the ministry, you go into law, you be a professional. That wasn't for him. He was an outdoor guy. He liked to use his hands. So he ultimately immigrated to the United States with about $50 to his name. Um, he got to the United States and then came west and, and started working um, – in whatever jobs he could, contractors, things like that. And then in 1861, when, when the Civil War broke out, he was in Missouri. He formed a militia um, for the Union Army, was promptly captured and let go. And so then he became a contractor for the Union Army, and those contacts that he made during that time really kind of set up his lumber empire. Mm. He ultimately made his way down um, to Waco around 1875, and became a lumber tycoon. He did more than that, though. He also had grain mills, flour mills, uh, 
he acquired um, uh, around 100,000 acres of pineland in East Texas, and then also lots of land in, in Louisiana for Cypress. So he was, you know, just a very astute businessman, banking, whatever you want to name it. He was philanthropic. He was involved with the YMCA. In fact, he, he deeded money to the YMCA, or didn't deed it. He can, it was part of it, his will. I see. And um, so there was his philanthropy. He would often get down in the dirt and work with people. You know, he was not a guy that was going to just sit up there highbrow. Mm-hmm. He worked, and he cared about what you had to say. And if you didn't tell him what you thought, he'd fire you. Mm-hmm. You know, he, he was not a guy that was just going to sit around and be idle. He was a take charge, be action, a very humble man. Mm-hmm. But I think at the time that he passed, he passed really unexpectedly in 1899. Um, he had a stroke pretty much while he was boarding a train in Louisiana. And at the time he passed away, his wealth was about $3 million. And just looking about that um, today, in today's dollars, I mean, it's around $94 million. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that's a lot of money. Um, very, very wealthy. And so when he passed, though, he was married to Flora B. Cameron. He had been previously married um, to a woman named Letitia Stewart in Missouri. She passed away unexpectedly in 1875. He had two daughters um, from his first marriage, and those daughters were Sadie and Annie. You don't really hear much about them in Waco just because they were so much older than the rest of the family. I see. And when when William Cameron passed away, those two daughters inherited a lot of his Louisiana interests. But through his second wife, Flora Cameron, he also had three children. William Waldo Cameron, who was his only son, and then he had two other daughters, I think Margaret and also a Flora. And William Waldo Cameron, at the age of 22, took over the company in 1911. He actually couldn't take over the company at the beginning because he hadn't reached the age of majority. He didn't have a whole lot of um, education beyond, you know, your basic education. He'd gone to A&M for a brief period of time. I I disregard that. Um, And then he also went to a military academy for a short period of time. But then at the age of 17, requested to go to work for his dad. His dad put him to work in one of, I think it was one of the Sladen Kirksey woolen mills and said, disregard family relationship. You work him as hard as you would any other employee. And so he started just like everybody else doing a lot of the work, kind of made his way up. So he had been working for about five years, but didn't really have a whole, you know, executive experience to run what is effectively a multi-million dollar operation. Yeah. Um, and so when he took over in, in 19, 11, everyone, or I, I'm sorry, in 1900, okay, everyone pretty much predicted that he was, the company was going to fold. Yeah. So, so dad passed away in, in 99. He takes over in 1900. In 1900. Okay. And so he takes over in about 1900. And I'd made some notes on it this morning. Um, I think there was somewhere in the neighborhood of about, oh, 18 retail lumber yards at the time that he took over and his basic thought was, I'm not going to be speculative. I'm going to be very conservative. My dad built an empire. My job is to not lose it for my sisters and my family, Mm -hmm. which is probably the right attitude to take. But he was a great businessman in in his own right. In the 40 years that he basically ran the company, they expanded from about 14 to 18 retail lumber yards to 88. And you had sash and door companies you had a bunch of different various interests, and he grew the company, and the Cameron family prospered. And as a result of the Cameron family prospering, Cameron Park prospered. Yeah, They continued to donate money. They continued to um, acquire property. Various different acquisitions were made over the course of time. Um, Flora Cameron, though, was the matriarch. There's not a lot written about her, unfortunately. And part of the problem is, you know, when you're a woman back then, you, there's not someone who's being your biographer. Yeah. R.J. Tolson is the primary biographer of the Cameron family. And, and he wrote a lot about the Cameron family, but primarily about William Cameron and William Waldo. But Laura was very known to be active in Federation of Women's Clubs. She was very civic-minded. She was very philanthropic and beloved. Um, when she passed away... Uh, 
the city pretty much shut down. Mm. I mean, they went half mass with mm. flags. I mean, it was a, a it was a loss for the city when she passed. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of people really beloved her in the city. Um, and so those are the three primary Cameron family members that we think of as being um, the architects of Cameron Park. Yeah, kind of the benefactors. Yeah, the benefactors yeah. of the park. Mm-hmm. And in fact, even even when the city of Waco really wasn't doing as much to take care of the park, it was the Cameron family. They set up the Cameron Park Improvement Fund. I think it was E.C. Bolton, Edward Cameron Bolton, who was was a you know one of the relatives of, of the Cameron family. Um, direct line, because um, I think Flora Cameron Bolton and Edward Cameron was either her husband or was a child. I, I can't remember right now, so excuse me for not remembering that. <laughs> um, but they set up this fund, $75,000, and that's who was helping to fund a lot of the improvements in the 1960s when the city didn't really have the money to take care of the park. Yeah, we're going to talk about that because I know the park goes through a, a tough, as the city does, a rough period there. Yeah. Um, I'm interested to, to kind of help listeners. You talked about Proctor Springs as kind of being the epicenter. How does it grow and kind of improve, uh, improve from there? Yeah. 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 And, and that's a great question because I think a lot of people, you think of Cameron Park as being this one contiguous track, and mm-hmm. that's just not the way that it was developed. So you have Proctor Springs between 90 and 125 acres. The city actually purchased area around 4th and Herring, which is where Cameron Park Zoo is now mm-hmm. at about the same time. Okay. And then in 1917, the Cameron family purchased the area up by Lover's Leap. Um, so that was the next major acquisition. Mm-hmm. And the reason for purchasing that wasn't necessarily to expand Cameron Park. It was to entice the federal government to build Camp MacArthur here because the city of Waco officials realized, hey, if we get a military camp, that's really going to boost the economy. Well, William Cameron also, you're a lumberman. Guess what they need? Barracks. Okay? And so it enticed the, the, the building of Camp MacArthur. They used those, the Lover's Leap area, for their recreational grounds. You'd have um, military bands play out there in the 1917s during the World War One, But a condition was military, you can use this. And then when you're done with Camp MacArthur, that land's going to go to Cameron Park. Okay. And so that was then deeded. And then sometime, I believe in the 1920s, I believe you had. So that's really interesting because I, I haven't thought about the proximity to Camp MacArthur or to Lover's Leap, but it's right there. Yeah. 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 And, and, and there was, there was the Riverside Drive. So, so mm-hmm. Kate Rotan, I shouldn't fail to mention her. I, I kind of mentioned Rotan Drive, mm-hmm. but it, Another woman, very vocal, very philanthropic family. The Rotan family was very prominent in Waco. She acquired a lot of tracks along in fronting the river in order to connect downtown Waco to Cameron Park. Okay. So what is now University Parks, which goes all the way downtown and goes through Cameron Park, the genesis of that was in around 1911-1914. W.C. Lawson, who was the earliest proponent of a park and boulevard system, starting in 1899 when William Cameron passed, mm-hmm. wanted that Riverside Drive. And that was kind of a key component of a lot of City Beautiful and a lot of what Kessler did was having a park and boulevard system. Mm-hmm. So she acquired that over time and then deeded it over, and that's how you got a right-of-way going all the way down. Okay. And then in 1920, which was the 10th anniversary, the Cameron family purchased 181 acres, which basically connected Lover's Leap with Proctor Springs. So it basically filled in the gap. So the areas like Mouth of the Bosque, Emmons Cliff, Lawson's Point, Circle Point, all of those areas that are some of the most picturesque parts of the park weren't even really part of that until about 1911 or 1920. Okay. Yeah, and I, I think of, so that bend that happens as you come into Pecan Bottoms and Rotan Drive, where it kind of bends over to the left, uh, is there a reason historically for that bend why Rotan Drive doesn't extend all the way down straight? You know what I'm talking about? Where it bends it bends around the pecan bottoms that are there. It may have been to preserve trees or something like that in that area. Okay, so yeah. I, know, I know what you're talking yeah. about. There actually was a road there. It, the road originally did go that it, way. It went through that parking lot there and kept yes. going. Okay. Yes, okay. And so, but there's a reason why that was actually removed. First of all, that 
Rotan Drive, like I mentioned, was right there on the Brazos River. Mm-hmm. But what Waco didn't have was flood control. Yeah. And so that river, that road was washed out, Yeah, particularly in the floods in the 1930s. Yeah, I knew that area was really prone to flood because it's at the mouth of both rivers meeting. So, yeah. So it was yeah. washed out in the 30s. Mm-hmm. Um, Wilbur Crawford of Austin Crawford actually did what the city of Waco called pro bono work in the 1950s and 1960s to rehabilitate and redo that road. Okay. Um, but there was a loop. And so you have that bend that you see now, mm-hmm. but you also had the straight line going forward. And so this created a loop with basically Parkland in the middle. I see. And that was a major congregation point for park dwellers and people that were in the park. Mm-hmm. But it caused a lot of traffic congestion in the 1970s and 1980s, and that became a major source of contention between the white community and the black community. And so and it, some people will say that this loop and the way that it was being used primarily by the black community in the 1970s and 1980s led to a decline. Well, I don't think that's correct because people just didn't want to go because they were scared, mm-hmm. um, either racial bias or for whatever reasons. Mm-hmm. But people that were down there, you know, yet African-Americans and black people in the community that I've talked to talked about the convivial atmosphere that you had down there. People went and they spent time in the park, just like anybody other. Mm-hmm. Um, but because of the traffic congestion caused by that, it could take you 30 minutes to an hour to just get past that one little bend because there were so many people down there on the weekends. Mm-hmm. And so in the eighties, there was a, um, committee that was appointed by the city of Waco and it was a committee of all Wacoans. So you had white Wacoans and black Wacoans, which was really important uh, because there was a lot of fear based on the history of segregation. You know, blacks thought that they were going to get kicked out of the park again. Whites are sitting there thinking we're scared. We want to be able to go back in, but we don't know what to do. So one of the things they did was they removed the loop. I see. And so you'd alleviate traffic congestion. Mm-hmm. And the other thing you did, they did was they appointed the Cameron Park Rangers, the mounted rangers mm-hmm. that would go in and they could be able to wade into the crowds and be able to kind of maintain order in the crowds. And so it preserved the ability of the people to continue to go into the park, but it also alleviated traffic congestion that had been keeping people out of the park. I see. And so people could get to other areas. I mean, if the main artery into the park for much of the first 20, 30, 40 years of the park was Herring Avenue mm-hmm. because that's where it dead ended. And there were actually streetcars. That's where the streetcar lines ended. So that was the main entrance. In fact, when the Cameron family for the 20th anniversary paid for a grand entrance plaza on 4th and Herring, 4th uh, and 5th and Herring. And that was actually built in Italian Renaissance style, very famous arches that were there. That was the main entrance to the park. Once Herring Avenue Bridge went in in the in the 70s, the main entrance got shifted more to university parks. Well, because it because there's a problem initially that the reservation is sitting where or near where the main entrance to the park is now. So in the 19 teens, this legal prostitution district that we talked about on another episode would have been problematic as a family friend, friendly entrance into the park. And so you'd want to take fourth street as kind of a end around. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well talk about the Herring Avenue bridge. This, uh, this is all fascinating, but I know that was controversial when they put that bridge in to span the Brazos. Talk a little, is is that around the same time they're doing these other improvements? So the 1960s saw kind of an explosion in improvements. Mm -hmm. You Alva stem, and uh, Andy Newman, who were the parks and rec- who was the park and recreations director, they could whatever resources they could find, they were making improvements. Mm-hmm. So at that point, you had a redwood shelter built, mm-hmm. you had the rock shelter built, and then you had the second iteration of Jacob's ladder. There, the original Jacob's ladder was actually a wooden structure that went straight up, and of course that rotted out. Mm-hmm. And so Alva Stem and his crews. They didn't have any equipment, so they just let gravity dictate how the stairs kind of zigzag up. That's why when you run up and then it's really uneven, that's what they could do with what they had. Uh And so that was built in the 60s. But at the same time, for about 10 years, 
there was a study for how they needed to improve street systems and the park system in the city of Waco. And the main recommendation was by this group called, I think, Harlan Bartholomew and Associates. They kept recommending we needed to build an extension of Heron Avenue through the main area of the park. So, like I mentioned earlier, the main historic area of the park, the most frequented area of the park was Proctor Springs. Mm-hmm. Herring Avenue is the main entrance of the park. Yeah. So you're bisecting the place of the park that is most nostalgic for Wacoans. Obviously controversial. Yeah. And so there had been some announcements of that was part of the plan, but when it went on to a bond election in 1967, it said nothing in the bond that they were going to expand Herring Avenue. What they said was street repairs. So everybody voted for street repairs. I mean, who's against street repairs? Well, when a lot of people in Waco found out that meant bisecting the most famous part of the park, the most frequent and beautiful part of the park, they weren't very happy. Uh And so the Cameron heirs weren't very happy. The Cameron Park or the Park Commission's board actually initially did not want it. Then they approved it. But some of the members of the board, including Nell Pape, who was a very strong voice um, in Waco at the time, was adamantly opposed. And they they formed the Save Cameron Park Committee. Mm -hmm. And they had about 1,300 people on a petition. They actually filed a lawsuit against the city of Waco. It was a class action lawsuit, actually. I was re- I'd never read the court opinion that I could remember until today, uh, which was was different reading it now because now I'm, I'm legal trained. <laughs> now you know what it means. Now I know exactly what it means, and and basically it was they were trying to they said that you city of Waco should not be allowed to build this because any condemnation of this land violates restrictive covenants mm. put in place by the William Cameron family when they deeded it over to the city of Waco. They actually had a jury trial on it, and the question that was presented to the jury said, is this going to destroy Cameron Park, blah, blah, blah. wasn't a very good question, and they didn't like the question that was presented. And the jury answered, no, it won't. And so you can actually read all the jury testimony and a lot of those court documents, which I really should have done in the course of the research, at the Texas Collection. They have all of that file there, mm-hmm. uh, which would be fascinating to read because E.C. Bolton, one of the Cameron family members gave testimony, I believe. Okay. And so that was then uh, appealed up to the 10th Court of Appeals in Waco. And they affirmed the judgment of the trial court and the jury and said, yeah, the city of Waco can do this. And they don't need to have any condemnation proceeding. And they don't even need to put it up to a vote for the city of Waco. It was then petitioned up to the Texas Supreme Court, which denied writ and basically said it was writ refused no reversible error which is basically as good as you can get from a legal perspective as a Supreme Court opinion. Yeah. And so City of Waco, they build Herring Avenue. Um, in fact, when they were starting to do that, one of, one, of, one of the best known environmental people in Waco was Dr. Fred Geldof. Yeah. And he's famous for, at the time, chaining himself to a dumpster and some of the tree, or not a dumpster, but it was a bulldozer, uh, or some of the trees out there to prevent the bulldozing of some of the most historic and oldest trees that were there. Yeah. And so there was a lot of environmental concern. Del Pape even offered to have different areas, um, I think she said on Tennessee Street or Indiana Street, to have a different crossing. And the city of Waco rejected all of those and said, look, we've been studying this for 10 years. That's not feasible. We're doing Hearing Avenue. Mm. And so that went through. Underlying that is is some racial tones. Yeah. Obviously, white Wacoans don't want black Wacoans in East Waco, which they've been largely relegated to, particularly after the tornado uh, in the 50s and elsewhere, to be able to have main access to the park. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot harder to keep people out and maintain segregation if there's a direct access point. Yeah. You don't see that necessarily in the in the paper. But it's there. Yeah. It's definitely an undertone. Well, and it was definitely, I've talked to African-Americans in town, and it was their perception of the struggle. It wasn't an environmental struggle. It was a racial struggle about that bridge. And, yeah. I, and I think it's, it's mixed. I yeah. mean, you have people from an environment, like Dr. Gelbach, I think, from an environmental perspective, yeah. he's there. Yeah. And then you have people who, from a nostalgic purposes, don't want that destroyed. Mm-hmm. But there's definitely a racial t- overtone, undertones yeah. there. Yeah. And they wanted to keep it out. 
but it became a self-fulfilling prophecy. As soon as, as soon as Herring Avenue is built, you have a combination of white flight, you have economic downturn, and so white people abandon the park. Mm-hmm. And there's a vacuum that's filled. African-Americans, yeah. black, black Wacoans filled the park, and they used it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, if, if you're scared of something and people start using it, instead of trying to integrate the park and everybody use it and maintain it, you just didn't have that. Mm-hmm. And so it kind of kind of switched hands. The park kind of switched hands in the seventies and the eighties. Yeah, the um, the argument for the park, I mean, for the Herring Avenue Bridge, was it about creating access to East Waco? How do they make the argument? The city make the argument for the bridge? They needed a thoroughfare to connect East Waco. Okay. I mean, they're really. I mean, other than having the suspension bridge, um, which really wasn't going to be a street. You're, I don't even know if it was still operational right at that point in time. Mm-hmm. You've got the Washington Street Bridge, probably the interurban, and maybe Waco Drive. Yeah. But there's no other access points, you, you know, at that point. Yeah. And so they needed another connection um, into the city. Yeah. And that was where they felt was the most appropriate position to do that. Okay. So, and, and, and it makes sense. I mean, I, I mean, if you go over that area, where else do you build it? Um, I mean, I obviously don't like the fact that you lose the most historic part of the park mm-hmm. um, because you have Proctor Springs on one side of Herring Avenue. You have the Rose Garden on the other. People couldn't get to the two. Mm-hmm. You've got a major thoroughfare there. And so that did cause problems for the park as a whole. Mm-hmm. Um, but it did provide access, and it was access that Black Wacoans really didn't have at that point. I mean, you go back and you look – in, in, in the 1950s, you have Brown v. Board of Education, which basically gets rid of segregation, or it's supposed to. Mm-hmm. You're supposed to have integration of the schools. We all know the Supreme Court opinions issued. Waco schools don't even integrate until the 1960s, uh, maybe even 1970s. I can't even remember the exact date. And it yeah. took a lawsuit to do that. Yeah. Um, but in, the 1950, in 1954, following Brown, there were black Wacoans that were trying to go and access the park. They wanted access to the park. And the official position of the city of Waco uh, Police Department, they were forcing blacks out. They even published an article in the Waco Times-Herald saying, we're carrying forward these traditional policies. Not necessarily codified for Cameron Park, but it's informal. And so they said, until the city adopts a policy integrating the parks, we're going to keep blacks out. Mm-hmm. So you don't really get any integration efforts really until the 1960s. And Reverend Marvin Griffin at New Hope Baptist Church was mm-hmm. really one of the primary movers for that. He was the first black Wacoan that was appointed to the Parks Commission. Um, a lot of people don't consider, you know, the Parks and Recreation to be a, a powerful department in the city mm-hmm. because what's well, one of the first things that's cut in the budget? Yeah. Parks. Yeah. But the Parks Commission was a was a citizen oriented committee, committee, very powerful. So to have Marvin Griffin on there, Reverend Griffin on there, was a big deal. And Jack Colgen was one of the people that wanted that, and he wanted to see some of that integration. And Marvin Griffin helped to facilitate some of that. Yeah, particularly with public space. I mean, you talk about public space, how key that was in the integration effort. So yeah. it, it is big. Yeah. In in in. You know, I interviewed Reverend Griffin for that, mm-hmm. and he said w- what they did was they started hosting church picnics in the park, and it was a way to start integration, yeah. and there wasn't a lot of pushback. And, 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 and that was a lot of how integration happened in businesses around town. I mean, one of the stories he told me that's always stuck with me was he talked about Leslie's Fried Chicken, and if you know anything about Waco history, everybody knows yeah. about the Chicken Shack. Yeah. I loved the Chicken Shack. Being a, uh, I don't want to say younger Wacoan because I'm almost 38, <laughs> but when I was growing up, I didn't even have any concept that Leslie's Fried Chicken had been a place the black Wacoans couldn't go. Yeah, And he talked about in, 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 the, in the interview that you could smell Leslie's Fried Chicken, but they were not allowed to go there. Yeah. And what he did was he called the owner and said, we're coming. Mm-hmm. And the owner said, okay. And he just kind of braced for it. And then it just kind of organically happened. Yeah. And that happened in a lot of places in and around Waco. And that's kind of what happened with Cameron Park. Mm-hmm. Um, but Herring Avenue Bridge accelerated that um, in a different time frame. But there's no question in Waco's history that black Wacos were not allowed in Cameron Park for 
at least 50 years. Yeah. Um, and it, it's interesting that strategy. I, I shouldn't say 50 years. Yeah. I, I like should probably say about 40, 40 years. About yeah. 40. It, it's interesting that move by Reverend Griffin because you've got to you've got to let African Americans experience Waco uh, Cameron Park as a safe place as well. I mean, so having picnics in the park and get acclimated to a space that they weren't allowed to go to previously. And really, yeah. the only space that they had in East Waco was Bledsoe Miller. Yeah. I mean, and that's not a large no. park. You know, Cameron Park is 416 acres, and there's so much different recreational opportunities. Mm-hmm. And, and so by by having Harry and having you did open it up mm-hmm. um, to East Wacoans. And that was a good thing. Yeah. You know, and I think, I think that was the right decision by the city. Understand why people were frustrated and didn't like losing historic parts of the park and some of the more beautiful aspects, but I don't know how, how else you really go about creating another connection other than doing that. Mm-hmm. You talked about the propensity of the lower parts of the park to flood. Because one thing I've thought about Cameron Park, one reason you set it aside is what else can you do with it? I mean, it's, it, some of the landscape of Cameron Park would be problematic for other development as far as other things that you could do with it. Yeah. yeah, I mean, you're in a floodplain. Mm-hmm. So there, you're not going to have a whole lot of development there. So a park makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. I mean, you did see early on um, some cattle grazing. And, and in fact, there was a Proctor Springs company in the nineteen early 1910, and that's who Cameron family bought it from, who was trying to do some residential development in the area. Okay. And you do see some residential areas uh, around and in bordering Cameron Park, mm-hmm. um, kind of over by the clubhouse and kind of going back that way. And in fact, there's been a recent development called, um, oh, uh, what is the name of that? Yeah, I don't remember the name of it. But I know where it is. I've been through it. But it borders the back of the yeah, park. Yeah, it borders the back of the park. There's yeah. there's a famous museum in New York City that actually has the same, the cloisters. Yeah, the cloisters. The cloisters. Yeah. yeah. But there's also, in fact, I, I actually was looking today because we were talking about wanting to know what's happening with the park currently. And there's people that are worried that private development's going to harm the park because mm-hmm. you are seeing more residential development. In fact, I've noticed even myself just looking on Zillow and Realtor, there's a large section kind of over by the Northern gateway over by Re- that's being marketed to be sold several mm-hmm. acres. Um, but the city of Waco says, look, we've got new plans. Um, Jonathan Cook of the Parks and Recreation Department is quoted in this this article with KWTX that the city's actually purchased an additional thirty acres, mm. and so there are there there are things that they are undergoing to try to expand the park and preserve a lot of the um, and improve the trails mm-hmm. because Cameron Park's on the national trail system. I mean, people come from all over the country and all over Texas to hike and bike in yeah. Cameron Park. Yeah. Um, you know, the triathlons, everything else like that are going to be used. And the marathon goes through Cameron Park. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I don't think Cameron Park is going to change in how it's being used recreationally. Uh, you may see some more residential development on the fringes of the park, but that's never going to happen inside the park itself. Mm-hmm. I just don't see that happening. Mm-hmm. You talked about uh, kind of racial issues of the park and this kind of season of abandonment of the park by whites. Um, I know the park goes into kind of a period of where it needed improvements and and they're not spending money on the park. Would that be in the seventies and eighties primarily? Yeah. And you know, and I was, I was thinking about that today. It's kind of, it's kind of interesting to see the difference in the 1930s during the great depression, people flocked to Cameron park, even though there wasn't a ton of money. I mean, there were some improvements that are being made, but people flocked to the park. They went outdoors. Mm-hmm. In the 1970s, when you have stagflation and recessions and high oil prices, people abandoned the park. Yeah, And so it's, it's quite a difference in just 40 years how people reacted to economic turmoil. Um, now, part of that is because from the 1930s to the 1970s, Waco's expanding out. You have wide flight. Mm-hmm. You know, people aren't going to Cameron Park because you're having to go further into the city mm-hmm. than you did in the 1930s. And then also there's that perception um, when Waco's going through economic decline, like we talked about, the parks aren't being funded. Yeah. So you don't see a lot of upkeep. And when you don't have upkeep, you know, you're inviting criminal elements. And you did have a lot of criminal elements in the park 
I mean, but that's to be expected when you have 416 acres. You can't have police patrolling all of that, and it's heavily wooded. Mm-hmm. So you have drug dealers, you have prostitutes, and you have people that can do things um, by car in the 1970s the way in the 1930s they probably couldn't. Yeah. So you definitely have more criminals. In fact, one of the guys in the 1980s that was interviewed was from um, the Bronx and Central Park area. In New York in the 1980s was notorious for crime. Yeah. Well, he came down to Waco. He was staying in Cameron Park, and he said, look, I'm from New York, and Cameron Park scares the hell out of me. Well, if you're in the park at night, I mean, come on, man. Yeah. I mean, I can see how there's going to be some more seedy criminal elements, and and just knowing people that are on the park ranger staff, they'll still tell you at night, I mean, why are you going into a very dark spot? Yeah. That's a wooded area at night. I mean, you're inviting yourself for that. Yeah, we, we've talked about this on the podcast with Brad Turner, some of the folklore around the park, and which is Castle, and and all the stories about uh, that are in and around the park, Lindsay Hollow and all those oh, places yeah. that carry stories with it. Yep. So, yeah, because I've thought about that before, that, that just that fear of wilderness, kind of how that plays into times with Cameron Park is this, as, as we become more urbanized and we become more suburbanized, how we look at wild spaces differently than we used to. Well, and and you know, it's kind of interesting in the 1920s, there was a murder in Cameron Park. Um, And this is not a good reflection in Waco because there's a murder in the park, but it doesn't really impact park usage. Well, the reason why is because there was a a woman who was with her, her date and he was shot and killed. And she was allegedly sexually assaulted. I don't know if she was or wasn't. I don't have a reason to say she was or wasn't. I'm just telling the story. Okay. They arrested six black men for it because that's who she said did it. A special constable who's deputized goes and finds a young man who matches the description that's being given, lures him to the house under the pretense that he's going to do yard work, presents her to the woman who's been a victim, who's obviously, if she's if she, she's seen someone murdered, mm-hmm. so she's going to be traumatized, screams, that's him. The father on the spot unloads his six-shooter yeah. into the man. Yeah. A couple months later, someone else confesses to the This crime. is the Jesse Thomas. Is this Jesse Thomas? I believe yeah, it was yeah, Jesse. Yeah, Jesse Thomas yeah. Lynch, yeah. And, yeah. Um, and, you know, he's, he's just flat out murdered yeah. in the doorway yeah. by, by a civilian. Yeah. No one bats an eye. Yeah. You know, but then you have violence or you have crime in the park in the 1970s and 80s and people don't go, mm-hmm. you know, but that was one of those things where, you know, you, you did have uh, racial violence that was that was connected to the park. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, and then in the 70s and 80s, you have, you know, some criminal elements that are happening. But, you know, you talk to the Rangers that were going down there and they say, by and large, people were having a good time. Yeah. You know, people were listening to music and enjoying the park the way that other people would. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's the perception more than any than the reality. Mm-hmm. And, and a lot of times what you would have is crime that occurred outside the park and then people would be brought in. Like, I believe, I, you can correct me if I'm wrong, you probably remember, but I think, you know, one of the more famous murders in the 80s was the airport park, Lake Waco murders. Those bodies were found in Cameron Park. Yeah, I know. Well, they were transported there. Yeah. But that contributes to the perception uh, that this is a violent place and this is a place we can't go and we're not going to go there because we're going to be harmed. Mm -hmm. And so it kind of creates this myth of the park being a a really dangerous spot. Mm -hmm. So. Well, we're getting up into the time period where Mark Furman was born. So I don't know that I introduced you as a native Wacoan, but I think we've established that in our conversation. So. Talk about kind of your, you know, as as you were a kid, I mean, wh- how was the park talked about or presented to you or did you have interaction with it? So I, I was born in the 80s mm-hmm. and um, one of the first revitalization efforts in the park was Anniversary Park, which was done by Junior League, mm-hmm. uh, by the clubhouse. And then you had Miss Nellie's Pretty Place. Yeah. And those are part of the things that you're seeing to try to encourage some revitalization. And I, I mean, my first memory of the park is a birthday party that my mom had been on junior league and was at anniversary park. They had an awesome playground. Um, and I remember going to Cameron park and playing on the playgrounds for school field trips. Mm-hmm. I had nothing but positive memories of the park. I didn't even know that Cameron park was supposed to be 
a dangerous place yeah. or that people had that perception. I didn't start learning that probably until I got to college. And then the oh Cameron Barter, don't go, don't go there. You yeah. Know? My my wife Liza, when she was she was a freshman at Baylor, Baylor PD told her don't go to Cameron Park, and I was like, what on earth? Now I, I just didn't have any conception of that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think a lot for a lot of older Wacoans, you know, that had grown up probably that part of the baby boomer generation, they had experienced the park in you know I don't want to call it heyday in the '60s and '70s, but it was definitely a period of in, in, in the '60s, yeah, prior to the bridge and some of the decline in the '70s. They then associated that the park is dangerous. I can't go there. Yeah, that may not have been the case for everyone, but the general feeling when I talk to people, you know, that are older than I am, was that it was not a safe place to go. But that was not my experience. Yeah, you know, I played disc golf out there. I loved going to the park, so uh, I always had positive experiences with it. I've always thought, as downtown Waco goes, so goes the park. So I mean, if you think about this period of kind of downtown Waco you know, is struggling a bit in the 70s and 80s, you know, it, it, that's reflected. In, and then kind of the renaissance we've seen in the use of the park and what's happened in downtown Waco over the last 25, 30 years, they seem very connected. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think the fortunes of Cameron Park are a microcosm of Waco in a lot of a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, as the city thrives, the park thrives. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, I think the exception to that is probably in the 30s, but it was an outdoor place that people could go as free entertainment. Yeah. Um, but even then, you still had a little bit of development. I mean, that's when the Rose Garden came in and you had the 20th anniversary in 1930 before the Depression really set in. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think, yeah, you, you do see the park thrives when the city of Waco thrives. Mm-hmm. And in my opinion... It's Waco's greatest asset. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it is a place that people that only see the interstate don't know exists. And then when they go there, they're kind of stunned. Yeah. Um, Cameron Park Zoo is a great zoo. The disc golf is fantastic on both sides of the river. And there's, you know, there's great playgrounds. Pecan Bottoms is just a good place to be. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you go down there on a weekend, you know, tons of people are there. Uh, even even during the weekdays, people are out on Pecan Bottoms playing all the time. Mm-hmm. Even up in the northern, you know, Lover's Leap, in that area, um, you know, there's a there's a playground and a splash pad up there, and there's you know the views from Lover's Leap and Circle Point are incredible. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when, now that people are utilizing the river in different ways, kayaks and things like that, um, paddle boats. I, th- I think the mouth of the Bosque is even more important. And, of course, people hike and they bike and they do all kinds of things. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it really is Waco's playground Yeah, in a lot of ways. Yeah, um, And it's it's one of the things that we can market um, that other people don't have, especially as you're seeing more of an urban core develop that people are living downtown. Mm-hmm. Where are they going to go? They're going to go to a green space, and Kimber Park's easy to get to. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, yeah, we, I interviewed Larry Groth for, and you know, he gave a great kind of description of the development of the zoo project because the way they were able to do that and really maintain the integrity of the park and to incorporate it into the existing park was really a remarkable uh, job the way they did that. So, um, so one thing that you were directly involved with was the centennial. And, uh, this is, uh, this is why you're not a youngin' anymore. Uh, in in 2011, uh, as a uh, as a graduate student when you're at Baylor, uh, they organized the 100 year anniversary of the park. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that? That seems to be, if we're doing a timeline here, the development of park a really important moment, as well as the city kind of recommitted and the community kind of recommitted to how valuable they see the park is. What were some of the things that were done for that? So first I'll say it was 2010. Oh, 2010, I'm yeah, sorry. 1910, 2010. Yeah, yeah. So um, what they did for the centennial was was really good. So Sharon Fuller, who was the park planner at the time, deserves a lot of the credit mm-hmm. because she was the first one to really realize that the 100-year anniversary was coming up and that there was an opportunity um, to seize on that in order to do a lot of the projects in the park that a lot of people in Parks and Rec wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and so... There was a bond that was put forward in 2007 in order to do a lot of the um, developments and rehabilitation efforts. That passed, which was huge. Mm -hmm. 
And then, of course, you had an economic recession in 2008, which actually benefited the city and the parks department because people were so desperate for work, they were actually to save about $2 million in a lot of what they were doing. Okay. And so they did rehabilitation efforts over at Proctor Springs. So they built a new footbridge there, and they built a new shelter there and replaced the, the historic one, but they kept the same character. Mm-hmm. They redid the Redwood Shelter. They improved the Rockwood Shelter by kind of, they lifted up um, what was the roof to provide more light. Mm-hmm. They created an entrance plaza and some parking over a Jacob's Ladder. They redid, um, much to my chagrin, the fence lines at Circle Point and at Lover's Leap. Yeah. And so they moved that back and they made it transparent, but they took down the historical walls that had been built in the 1930s. Yeah. I mean, the fence is a fence. People are going to jump it. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I, I can build it 10 feet tall and people are going to get an 11 foot ladder. Yeah. Um, and so, but they did do that. But thankfully they, they made it a see-through type fence. Mm-hmm. And um, there used to be a loop at Lover's Leap as well. And they took that loop out to kind of control traffic and prevent people from hiding back in the back of Lover's Leap. And they redid, I think, some of the northern gateway up that way. And they redid parts of Mouth of the Bosque. What was kind of in Circle Point. Circle mm-hmm. Point was redone. In fact, they have kind of like a round little ziggurat type deal yeah. where you can get a really good view all the way down to McLean Stadium in uh-huh. um, the Farrell Center. And so that was a lot of the main things that they did as far as rehabilitation efforts. They wanted to do more with Proctor Springs. They couldn't. Oh, and the clubhouse. Yeah. They redid the clubhouse. Mm-hmm. They added on a porch and a patio. So the original structure in, in, for the clubhouse was a private clubhouse that eventually became part of the park. And it was a southern two-story mansion that a lot of people used, had birthday parties. And it had a second-story deck that was you know, famous for the views. Mm-hmm. It burned down. And then the modern clubhouse was built, and so they kind of added on a deck now, which is great. I mean, I think it was it was a really good addition. Um, so those were some of the improvements. And then they did, um, on the actual dedication, we had a rededication, and heirs of the Cameron family came from Buffalo, New York, and elsewhere, and speeches were given uh, Kay Olson and Tom Charlton were the two chairs. Mm-hmm. And Dr. Charlton is, was a huge advocate for the park. Yeah. And he really was the impetus for a lot of the original. What became my book was originally um, a study that was done by one of his public history classes in, I think, the 1990s. Marcus Johnson and a couple of the people were a part of that. Yeah. And they did a really good job. And then I took and expanded upon that in order to do the work. But Dr. Charlton was a huge advocate for the history of the park. And then Kay Olson was was tremendous in raising funds and, and putting on the programs for the park. And the Cameron family was so impressed with what the city had done, they donated $100,000 on the spot. And there were literally audible gasps yeah, wow. in the crowd when it happened. And then there was, there, was a, there was programs. And, of course, the 4th of July is kind of transitioned down that way. Mm-hmm. And there were some other concerts that were in the park kind of throughout the year. It was kind of a year-long deal. Yeah. Um, but it was it was a great way to commemorate the park, reacquaint people in the park. In fact, if you go through there now, um, they put in some um, – one thing that I was really glad that Sharon Fuller did was she had found some of the original light posts that had been put in the park. Mm-hmm. And what's unique about those is they have kind of a covering on the top of the light that causes light to be projected downward. Mm-hmm. And so they put those throughout the park to eliminate light pollution. Mm-hmm. And so it doesn't disturb animals. It preserves kind of the, the darkness, um, but also provides light in the areas that you need it. Yeah. Um, so they went back kind of to the historical elements of the park, and they put benches all throughout the park commemorating the centennial. And those were modeled after an exact mold that was in the park that was original. Yeah. Um, so you see a lot of that in the park now. And then there's new signage that's been put up everywhere that kind of details uh, the history of the park in different places, uh, provides you know a lot more on the trails. A lot of historical markers were put up as well, kind of talking about the history of the park, mm-hmm. which I think was kind of a big deal. Um, so, yeah, there was, there was a lot of things that they were able to do that kind of really captured momentum for the 100-year anniversary, and I think has really carried the park 
or the last 10 to 11 years. Um, haven't seen additional improvements at, at Emmons Cliff or Lawson's Point, which yeah. I would really like to see. Because yeah. one of the more famous spots historically was Emmons Cliff. Um, there's a very, in my mind, famous photograph of Dr. Armstrong who would take his English classes out there and he would he would lecture. And there was a fountain at Emmons Cliff and there was also a um, kind of a cement uh, brick wall there. Mm-hmm. Well, the the waiting pond fountain is still there. You can still see the remnants, but it's so overgrown. Mm-hmm. And so Emmons Cliff is really a place that I'd like to see the city go and kind of rehabilitate. Yeah. Lawson's Point as well. And of course, like we talked about with Proctor Springs, some of those original landscaping. I don't know if we're able to have the funding to do it, but it would be great if they could. Yeah. But you know, there's always other anniversaries. That's right. Yeah. So, you know, <laughs> the the 115 years is in 2025. That's right. So, and then we're going to have uh, 120 and 125. And so maybe maybe we can capture some more momentum and continue to kind of revitalize the park um, because it is Waco's best asset. And it's used by everybody, you know. Yeah, well, as we said, the city is doing well. So that bodes well for possible additional improvements in the park. Yeah. And like I mentioned, Jonathan Cook talked about in this article with KWTX that there is a plan that is being made. So maybe we will hear something in the future. And I thought about calling Jonathan today just to bug him. He probably would have been like, why are you calling me? But, um, (laughs) you know, when I did a lot of the uh, original research work, um, they had some of the files for the park commission. So I, I, Jonathan was there and Kim Jennings was there and I got to meet a lot of the staff and, they were great people. They really care about the park. And the Parks and Rec Department does a fantastic job, in my opinion. Um, and the Rangers particularly do a good job. Yeah, so. well, I know uh, you, I know you enjoyed doing those oral histories with the Rangers. So, yeah. yeah. Talk a little bit about the book project. Um, and uh, most, <laughs> most people don't uh, publish their uh, master's thesis. So t- talk a little bit about the book project and doing that. So... Um, we were, I was part of a public history class with Dr. Parrish, and we were kind of going to be tasked with doing an updated deal of that study I mentioned that Dr. Charlton's earlier class had done. Mm-hmm. And being from Waco, I had an investment in the park that probably a lot of other people in the class didn't. Mm-hmm. And I really wanted to see this be something big and better. And so... I was searching for a master's thesis idea, and I approached Dr. Parrish about it, and he was like, fine. And we, we presented to the rest of the class, and those of the students that wanted to contribute and help could, and those who didn't, didn't need to. Mm-hmm. But there, I did receive help from Dave Sikama and John Bean and a couple of other people uh, that were in the class that did some oral histories and did some research work and helped to find some articles. So they're, they're attributed as, as co-authors of the book, and they – they, their their work was uh, was invaluable in helping to bring that together, mm-hmm. um, and uh, you know I took your class on oral history mm-hmm. and did some of the Cameron Park oral history deals, and that was that was a big deal because we were able to capture the memories of the park. Because really, in doing the book, the park's just a park. Yeah, it's just a place. Yeah, it's just a it's just a bunch of trees. You need people to really bring them to life. Mm-hmm. And the memories of the people that were there made it a big deal. Um, so when I did the thesis, I titled it For the Pleasure of the People. Yeah. And because that's what the Cameron family dedicated it for. And I think that's really what's important is the book is really the memories of a lot of people in Waco of what the park meant to them and how those memories changed and how the park changed over time. Yeah, it's really the meaning of the park to different groups of people over time. Yeah, yeah I think. Yeah, and I think yeah. I think the part of the deal with the book as well is it was it was an it was a chance to um, celebrate the park, but also to remember where we've been. Yeah, and where we're going because there were parts of the aspects of the history of the park that really hadn't gotten any attention before. Mm-hmm. You know, the history of Black Americans in the park or Black Wakelands had really largely been ignored. Yeah, and part of that was because they weren't allowed in the park. Mm-hmm. Um, but we tried to capture some of that, and I wish we could have captured more. Mm-hmm. Um, I wish we could have captured more um, of the Hispanic community's involvement with the park. Mm-hmm. Uh, we tried to do that by going to various libraries in the city of Waco, and I think now I would probably do things on how we did that differently. You go and you see, like, the Waco 
History and Pictures Facebook page. Mm-hmm. So many people post things on that. Yeah. Uh, particularly as it relates to Cameron Park. Yeah, I mean, we, that would we've, be, we've talked about that, about just so many images you hadn't seen before yeah. that you see there. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. Uh, even video. I mean, mm-hmm. the Smoky, Smoky Hollow Railroad was, yeah. was one of the main attractions, and I'd never seen video someone had of it. Yeah. You know, we solicited people to come out and bring those things. But if you don't come out, I don't know. Yeah. Um, but now I think I would have made I would I would make a much bigger use of social media as a way to connect. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I would try to do a much better job of trying to incorporate more people from more diverse viewpoints of the park mm-hmm. and just see what other people had to say. Yeah. Um, and their experiences. But it was it was a great project to work on. I learned so much about just Waco history, but also Cameron Park history. Mm-hmm. And it was a it was a good thing to be a part of. And, and honestly, it was, it's a highlight um, to be able to have to give back something to the city. Mm-hmm. I wish we would have printed more. I was going to say, if people wanted to find a copy, is there any way to do it? Yeah. Good luck. <laughs> you I know it was, a, it was a big bear press, which is Baylor University Press's yeah. uh, imprint, I think. It was an imprint, yeah. yeah. Carrie Newman over mm-hmm. Baylor University Press did that. They were originally, I think, only going to do 500 copies. And we persuaded them to do 750 to 1,000. Okay. And um, that sold out really quick. Yeah. A lot faster than I think they anticipated. Yeah. I never found out the exact number that they that they sold. Um, but if you wanted to get a copy of it, you can go to Amazon, but you're not going to pay the $35 that we originally <laughs> charged. I've seen, I've seen some of for over a thousand. I've seen some for oh a couple hundred dollars. Yeah. Um, some people though have told me they found it at half price books or other places. So be on the lookout, but I don't know of a bookstore in Waco where you could get it anymore. Okay. Um, you know, maybe in an anniversary down the line uh, that could happen, but you know, this book was possible in large part because Kay Olson was able to persuade HEB to donate about $50,000 to get it printed. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a four color book. It's yeah. not cheap to print a book like this. No, it's a beautiful book. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, I'd love to be able to see another copy, but I mean, expense wise, it's not a cheap thing to do. And I understand that. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and, and I would love to be able to someone to step up. Maybe we can find a camera family here and get some more printed, but, yeah. uh, it was a, it was a great project to work on. Yeah. Good. Good. And I was glad you were part of my thesis committee. Yeah, it was fun. It was fun. Yeah. He passed, by the way. Just to, you probably assumed that listener, but yeah, he passed. Yeah. <laughs> well, Mark, I appreciate you uh, coming in with us today. We're going to do a, a series on Cameron Park, and Mark's helped with some of the other folks that are going to come on. I think we'll do two more episodes that we'll get to, and so you can listen for those. If you find a copy of the book, Mark will sign it for you. I think there's some that are signed floating out there. Oh, actually. are they really? Yeah, those yeah. are worth even more. That's the $1,000 one. I actually think that it makes it a little bit less, but, you know. <laughs> Somebody you know, wrote in this. Yeah, someone wrote it. <laughs> Who is this person? So. <laughs> well, I really want to thank you for coming on the podcast. Well, I appreciate it. It's been a lot of fun. Cross the Brazos and White Ride hard, that'll make it by dawn. Thanks for listening to the Waco History Podcast. Like what you heard? Subscribe, rate, and review our show on iTunes so we can reach more listeners. You can find show notes and info on every episode at wacohistorypodcast.com and more info on Waco's past at wacohistory.org. Our theme music, used with permission, is Cross the Brazos at Waco, performed by the late Billy Walker. For more info on Billy's music, go to billywalker.com. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. This has been a Rogue Media Podcast.